Now, let's jump ahead. If you got your Bibles, Genesis 38, and we are going to finish that weird story of Judah and Tamar today, all right? We don't skip scripture. We go through all of it, uh, and we're going to jump in and study this passage, finish it out today, and I hope it blesses you. I tell you what, this has kind of been interesting. There are many of you that could have gone to church your whole life and never heard this passage, and uh, the reason is because it's a difficult one to go through. It's got some weird elements to it, but can I tell you what I've learned these last three weeks? Um, Weird resonates right now. You know what I mean? As we've gone through this study, it's been actually one of my favorites to, uh, to tackle this passage because, again, we're in a culture right now where we've got weird problems, all of us, myself included. And uh, you can almost see yourself in this passage because we rationalize sin and uh, we try to uh, pitch that something is a good idea when it's clearly a terrible idea. Uh, This story very much resonates. Well, we're going to finish it today and move on. Are you ready? Uh, If you got your Bibles, Genesis 38. Um, We started with this question. Have you ever had a problem that could have been avoided? Have you ever had a problem that could have been avoided? Remember, the definition of folly is an avoidable mistake. Now remember, Christ's shed blood covers our sin, past, present, and future. The stuff that we've done, the sin that we've committed, is not counted against us through the name Jesus Christ. Amen? Now here's the picture. As we go through it, your eternity is through Jesus. But the goal for us living in Christ and us living for him and becoming more like him is that we would begin to discipline out these avoidable mistakes so that we could shine more for him, that we could live with power, live that abundant life, and again, be used by him uh, as, uh, as those created in advance to do good works, like it says in the book of Ephesians. The problem is, we jump into mistakes that could be avoided. No better mistake, of an, no, no better picture of an avoidable mistake than getting a speeding ticket. You ever gotten a speeding ticket before? Speeding ticket is highly avoidable, right? You know the law, you know the speed limit, you know the situation, you can even have a feel in the flow of traffic. But again, you get pulled over. You ever had this happen before? I don't know why our city does this. If you get pulled over, traffic is all halted because everyone has to drive next to you and stare in at the car, right? And you're like, you've never seen anyone pulled over for speeding before, right? You just have one of those moments. Speeding is a very, very avoidable mistake, right? You have that moment of shame, but you could have avoided it. Didn't have to happen. Some of you who uh, college high school students in this room, did you ever have that moment where you stayed up late the last night before, waited till the very last minute on a project? and you stay up the night before working as hard as you can to get it finished. Some of you do that in the real world now too, right? You stay up late, you're working on that project, and then I'm telling you, you have that moment where you sit there and you go, I really am praying for a C. You know what I mean? I really, I, I'm not pointing fingers, okay? All right, but you have that moment. I'm really praying I can just pass on this thing because this was a very avoidable mistake, all right? And then some of you in relationships in this room, friendship or dating or marriage, And here's what happens. It's an avoidable mistake. You know that there is a nuclear button on your spouse, friend, relationship, that if you say or do something, it pushes that button, and then you cannot unpush that button, right? There are very real consequences that come from pushing that button. Here's the deal. Those are avoidable mistakes. My wife and I will be married 15 years, coming up in January, and I know where just about all those buttons are, all right? And I've learned over the years to put a glass case around them to duct tape them down so that I am never tempted to press one of those buttons, right? Very, very avoidable mistakes uh, that, we can, uh, that we can fight against. Now, it's one thing when it's a speeding ticket, staying up late, uh, or again, an argument button. We've got other sin, and all sin falls short of God's glory, But there are certain sins we commit that have very, very heavy consequences. 
like fraud, for example. Nobody just wakes up in the morning and goes, you know what, I think I'll commit fraud today, all right? Okay, <laughs> nobody does that. Fraud is one of those things where you never wake up wanting to commit it, and yet, after a series of avoidable mistakes, all of a sudden, there just seems like there's a path to this decision. Hatred of someone because of their skin color, hatred of someone because of their gender, hatred of someone for whatever reason, doesn't just happen in an instance. It's avoidable mistakes that are made over time, and then all of a sudden, you fall into this moment of deep, awful, awful hatred. For some of you who've been in a situation where you've been fired before, a firing that takes place that was your fault rarely happens in an instant. It typically is a set and a series of avoidable mistakes that added up to a moment where all of a sudden you became a person that you never intended to be. The same can happen in relationships with divorce. The same can happen with health, with massive debt, or even with having to pay with your life in prison time. Those moments, those avoidable mistakes, the little mistakes, it's not that they're any less important. All sin falls short of the glory of God. But we somehow sometimes can become a person that we're not if we stop analyzing and allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us on those avoidable mistakes in the journey. If you're taking notes, we're going to look real quick at Genesis 38, verses 12 through 15, and we're going to attack folly one more time. Avoidable mistakes and how we can run screaming from them so that we can become who God made us to be. Your eternity is in Jesus Christ shed blood alone. But folly, folly seeks to rob you of your purpose and, uh, uh, and also of your, uh, uh, of your uh, effectiveness. Look at what it says in Genesis 38, verses 12 through 15. Back to our weird story. It says, After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hera the Adullamite went with him. Remember Hera? Underline Hera the Adullamite. We can talk about him in just a minute. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, and she covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat down at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to to him as his wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Stop right there for just a minute. This is where we stopped last week. What we have here is a situation where Judah, remember, with this guy Hira, uh, Judah has uh, uh, sold his brother into slavery, his brother Joseph, uh, he and his brothers, but Judah's the one who came up with the idea. Well, at that point, Judah's like, I got to lay low for a while. I got to get out of here. And Hira's like, dude, come with me to Canaan. Let's get out of here. You can lay low with us. And then Judah listens to Hira. Every time he listens to Hira, he gets in trouble every time. And they sneak off to Canaan. Well, while he's there, he begins to build a life for himself, but all of it is built on this lie. So he's staying there. He builds up this family. And his oldest son, Ur, he gets a wife for him named Tamar. Well, Tamar is young, and so is Ur. Ur ends up dying because of bad decisions that he's made, and the Lord takes his life. Then, the way that the life insurance policy of that day and time works, someone in the family is supposed to father a child for Tamar so that she can have an heir. But then, the other brother, Onan, refuses to father the child with her, and he ends up being killed. And then you've got Shelah, this, who's apparently a very, very young man who uh, that she will eventually be given to. But Judah does not want to give his youngest son to Tamar because he doesn't want to split up the inheritance of his people. 
So what he does, he says to Tamar, just calm down, just calm down, just stay in the house, and one day when Sheila gets older, I'll make sure you're taken care of. But he never actually intends to follow through and do it. So a lot of time passes, and then Judah's wife dies. Hera, who was there for bad decision number one, shows up to Judah and goes, hey, I got an idea. Let's go up to Timnah. Now, here's what's interesting, that Tamar knew that they were visiting prostitutes, lets you know that that was basically the mission of this trip. Let's go shear the sheep in Timnah. Come on up with me, dude. Your wife's just died. You've got physical needs. I mean, you really deserve this. Come with me. We'll sleep with some prostitutes up in Timnah. While they're up there, as as, uh, Tamar hears about it, Tamar goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be the first prostitute he sees. I'm going on the road to Timnah. I'm going to cover my face. And she comes up with this wicked plan to entrap her father-in-law in the sin of incest. Nobody just wakes up in the morning and thinks they're going to commit a sin like this. But because of her circumstances, because of avoidable mistake after avoidable mistake, all of a sudden we're right here in this awful, unthinkable circumstance. So what happens? On the road to Timnah, he sees her, sees the veil over her face. And remember, we talked about this last week. She lives in his house, but he's so focused on her body parts, he can't tell who she is. He looks at her and goes, let me sleep with you. Let me sleep with you. I see that you're dressed like a prostitute. I see that you're selling. Let me sleep with you. And he doesn't see that he's walking in to a massive trap. If you're taking notes, our recap of last week is this. We said when it comes to folly, be mindful of who you are letting influence you and what your eyes are capturing. Let me say that one more time. Be mindful of who you are letting influence you and what your eyes are capturing. Remember, we talked about this. Hera does not make the bad decision, but Hera leans onto Judah until Judah is eventually shoved over the ledge into this bad decision. Now hear me say this. Hera is not the villain in the passage. Judah makes these decisions all on his own. So do not hear me say as your pastor today that it's your friend's fault. Rather, it is your fault for allowing that friend to influence you. You know the people you spend time with have influence over you, for good or for bad. Autumn's mom used to say this to her growing up. She used to tell her, be careful who you spend your time with. You might just fall in love with them. Isn't that interesting? Now, some of you single people in this room are going, that is really, really powerful, and it's the truth. But it's just as powerful for you married people as well. Be careful who you spend your time with. You might just fall in love with them. If you're married in this room, you need to make sure you are very mindful of the individuals you spend your time with, and you do not cut off whoever it is that you are attracted to completely because we have to stay in a working environment. But you better draw some rigid boundaries so that you don't step over into a mess. Be careful who you spend your time with. You might just fall in love with them, but it's not just for love. Sometimes it's that person who leans on you just like Hera and goes, you deserve this. Your wife just died. Don't you, can't you see this in the passage? Man, you got physical needs that need to be met, bro. Man, you got physical needs that need to be met. I mean, she might have had a long-term illness. Oh, it's been a long time since you've had that need met, bro. You deserve this. Come with me to Timnah. He leans, but Judah's the one who makes the decision. Be mindful who you spend your time with. And then second, we talked about be mindful of what your eyes are capturing. It says he saw her on the road. He saw the sin. 
And then he jumped headlong into it. Sin begins with the eyes, and it's not just lust. We talked about debt last week. There's some of you in this room who are getting all those catalogs and all that Facebook marketing because the Christmas season is coming up, and they want your money. They want it. And you know what? There are some spectacular marketers uh, around us that understand, like we talked about last week, a good marketer figures out the way to blur the line between want and need. Going from this is something I want, something I desire for my loved one, something I desire for myself, to something I need. My child needs this. My wife needs this. I need this. And then all of a sudden when that line is blurred, then they got your money at the same time. Some of you lobbyists in this room understand that as well. Blur the line between want and need. Now, here's what you got to hear. The marketer and the lobbyist are not wicked. You, knowing what you were called to do, knowing what is right, you are the one that make the decision on whether you are going to allow it to permeate your heart and mind or you are going to, again, stand up and continue to do what is right. It's on you. Be mindful of who you are letting influence you and then be mindful of what your eyes are capturing. It begs our big million-dollar question once again. How do you protect yourself from folly? Remember, Christ's shed blood is all that protects us for eternity. We're talking about protecting your influence and about being who God intended for you to be. How do you do that? Uh, And again, we're going to look at some examples. So look at what happens next, Genesis 38, and now verses 16 through 19. Here's what it says next. It says, Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law... He went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? "Uh, Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. Verse 19, after she, after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Stop right there for just a minute. What we find there at the end of the passage is that she had not embraced prostitution as a lifestyle. This was a one-time deal, and she had set a trap for this dude. Now, here's the picture. You need to catch this. She is not righteous in this passage. And he is certainly not righteous in this passage. What's happened is Judah, by existing in his folly, has now created a culture where he has discipled folly in those who are in his household as well. And what's happened is it's caused a great, great mess. He then doesn't have anything to pay her with. So he says, I'll get a young goat for my flock. He goes, look, please, just let me sleep with you. And then she says, how about you give me the things that mark you as a tribe. She takes the stuff so that it can all be pointed back to him. And this joker falls for it, hook, line, and sinker, right here in this moment. If you're taking notes, how do you protect yourself from folly? Number one today, be mindful of what you spend your resources on. Be mindful of what you spend your resources on. He wants to sleep with her so badly, it will be done in an instant. But at the moment, he's blurred the lines between want and need, and he has slept with this woman and given her all the tools so that she can tie it back to him at any point. I mean, this was a really, really foolish decision on his part. He has spent a very high price for something that was not worth it. Now listen to me. It's not just a situation like this. In this city, money... And time, money is worth a lot in the city. 
But your time is very, very important. What are you spending your precious time on? If you really, really stop to process it, what are you spending your precious time on? And if you're there going, oh, I just never have enough time at work, or I just never have enough time at home, or I just never have enough time to do this thing I love to do, I never have enough time to go to church. If that's you over and over again, then stop and analyze your schedule because we've all got the same 24 hours in a day. Where's the time going? Where's the money going? Any time in my life where something really becomes out of whack, I usually will stop, look at my finances, and go, whoa, I had a whole lot of money that was going over here for something I do not have to have. And then I could ride the ship and get back into a life of balance again. So back in the day, Autumn and I took the kids on a cruise, okay? We did a Disney cruise, and uh, I'm telling you, Disney is efficient at hospitality and in getting you to empty your wallet. You know what I mean? They are efficient. I'll never forget, it was our first time to do a cruise, and so we came on board the ship, and uh, we had like a, a, we had decided we were going to do everything with cash, so we have a squad of cash. We came up, we started to play, and then the Disney hospitality person, I mean, perfectly trained, comes out and goes, oh, put that money away. Money exchanging hands here is so vulgar. She said, we've gotten a card for each of you. And she hands us these cards. We'd never done any Disney thing before. She hands us these cards, and she goes, please, take the card. And she goes, we just scan it. Beep, beep. We just scan it. And then, and then at the end of your voyage, we'll have a bill that we'll settle up together. But don't worry about it then. And then we were like, oh, okay, this is great. Beep, 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 right? Okay, no big deal. A whole lot tougher than when you're doling out the cash. It's one of the reasons why we do Dave Ramsey here as a church. Do Dave Ramsey every semester. It means something different when it exchanges hands. But I'm telling you, we're on the ship, and you're watching all this stuff happen, and it was like, oh, Lulu needs that princess dress. You know, beep, there it is. Oh, oh my goodness, I never knew it, but Jack needs these bath toys and a little cruise boat tugboat for the bathtub. Oh, he's got to get that. Beep. And then before you know it, if you've been on a cruise before, because you're trapped together, same people. We did four nights. There is a massive difference between night one, two, and three and day four. Day four, the happy cruise begins to take a dark turn. All of a sudden, you can see it because families that have just beep, 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 use that card the whole way through, all of a sudden, you realize that bill is a coming. I'll never forget, they get on the announcement deal, and the cruise director, who had this amazing Australian accent, goes, Good day, mates, it's been a great voyage. Don't forget to settle up with your accounts before you leave the vessel. And I told Autumn, I was like, Oh my gosh, we got to look at the bill. And I'm telling you, we had saved the money, it was great, but it was so much higher than we thought it was going to be because we weren't watching it. We weren't keeping track. We weren't vigilant. I mean, we were, I told Autumn at the end, I was like, is some dude, some loan shark in mouse ears going to show up and break my legs before we get off the plane? I mean, you saw, or before we get off the boat? I was like, what in the world? Now listen, I tell you to say this, you got to be mindful of where those resources are going. I mean, you watch people checking out and they're yelling at their kids, yelling at their spouse. It has nothing to do with the experience, it had everything to do with the cost. Now listen, it's not just your money. It's not just your time. Let's be honest. Sometimes the resource is loyalty. Sometimes it's a person that you have been deeply loyal to, and they do not deserve that loyalty. I'm not giving you an, a license for an affair. I'm talking about like in a job situation. 
where you have been so loyal to them, you've been so good to them. I mean, you stand up for them. And I'm telling you, they don't even stand up for the organization. You got an employer that is there out for themselves. And that loyalty has been poured out and poured out. And it becomes this moment of great difficulty. I'm not telling you go in and slam down the gavel and quit tomorrow. What I'm telling you is really analyze. What are you giving up in trade for that loyalty? What are you giving up in trade? And for some of you, it has to do with friendship. You're in a situation where, if you're being honest, it's a one-way friendship. You love them deeply, but they could care less about you. Now, here's the deal. It doesn't mean every relationship's got to be in fully perfect balance, but be mindful of what you're spending. Be mindful of what resources you're putting out there. Back in the day, when Autumn and I got married, we got married so young. Autumn was still in her senior year of uh, college, and I was, she was barely, barely 22 by a couple of weeks, and I was 23. And back in those days, we used to stay up late, and we were central time zone, and we would watch Conan O'Brien, all right? It was our favorite show to watch at the end of the night. We'd watch the monologue, basically, and then we'd go to sleep about 1130. And so I didn't have to be into work until 830, and so it was great. And so when we were, when she was in college, she was student teaching that last semester. And student teachers, I mean, it's hard work, but it's not the same. And so she's got a pretty easy schedule. She's got to be in at 9. She's done at 2.30. But when she started teaching for real that next semester, Autumn got done with her classes, and then she had to grade all these different papers, plus we had ministry stuff to do in the evenings. And she came in one day, and she goes, I got to start going up. I got to start going to bed at 8, because I got to get up at 5 to make sure that we've got all this stuff done and ready for the school day. And I remember this was a legitimate discussion. I go, but we watch Conan <laughs> until 11.30. And she goes, I just can't do it anymore. I just can't do it. And here's the deal. For two weeks, I'm so stinking stubborn. For two weeks, I went, well, I'm staying up, and you can get up early. And then here's what we noticed. She's in bed at 8. I'm staying up till 11.30. And then we notice she's up at 5, but she's out the door before I wake up. So here's what we noticed. We had an hour and a half a day together. An hour and a half a day. And that's, if nothing else, cut out in our schedule. Here's the thing. You don't have to be on a perfect schedule with your spouse. But for crying out loud, count the cost. Count the cost. All of a sudden, I looked at it and went, oh, I don't want to get up early. But I love her. I want to spend time with her. If I start getting up early, then we could still spend the time together early in the morning. Count the cost. You think Conan O'Brien's going to show up at my funeral? <laughs> Not likely. Unless I die in a really funny way, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> he ain't coming to my funeral. He doesn't care about me. But my wife, if I go first, I want her to be able to say my husband loved me just a little bit less than he loved the Lord. And he loved the Lord with all his heart. Does that describe you? Or are you the one digging your heels in and going, I shouldn't have to deal with this. I shouldn't have to deal with this. If that's you, you're a temper tantrum child. Grow up. Count the cost. Jesus says it this way. Save your spot there in Genesis. And now flip over to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, verse 6, if you needed to hear it from the mouth of Jesus, he'll tell you right here. You ready? Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Here's what he says. He says, do not give to, do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. 
If you do, they may trample them under their feet. Look at this. And then they'll turn on you and tear you to pieces. Stop right there for just a minute. What you find in this passage is so interesting. Jesus says, don't give dogs what's sacred. If you are giving your resources to someone that doesn't deserve it, the dog doesn't take grandma's family heirloom and go, I'll treasure it always. The dog takes the heirloom and the dog does what the dog does. It rips it to shreds. The pig with a pearl. A pig will eat garbage and it's the same as if it ate a pearl. When you give the pearl to the pig, it destroys it. It eats it like garbage. And then notice this. Jesus then says, and then when you withhold anything else, then they will trample you underfoot. When you become a dealer for somebody with your resources, then when you finally wake up and you go, whoa, I'm not giving out pearls anymore to people who don't deserve it. I'm not giving out uh, what's sacred to dogs anymore because they just tear it up. Then here's what Jesus says. Then that builds you an enemy because then the person goes, whoa, 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 you were dealing out sacred stuff. Whoa, 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 you were dealing out pearls earlier. What are you trying to say? You're better than me? What are you trying to say? You're judging me? And before you know it, you've ended up with an enemy. Jesus says, be mindful of where your resources are going. Hadn't you figured out already? Sometimes you create an enemy because you dealt their drug to them. And then when you withhold, they hate you just as viciously as they ever gave. If you're taking notes, last question. Are you throwing away great value on unworthy pursuits? Are you throwing away great value on unworthy pursuits? I want you to hear judgment today. I want you to hear empathy because I get it. Every one of us have done this at one point or another, fallen into this folly or started down this trail to massive life destruction. Every one of us have started on that trail, but time today to wake up. Wake up. Now look at what happens next. Genesis 38, now flip back to verse 20. Genesis 38, verse 20. The story's going to get weirder. You ready for this? Verse 20. It says, now meanwhile, Judah sent a young goat by his friend, the Adolamite. Who's that? Hira. He now has enlisted Hira in the cover-up. I mean, every time this dude is mentioned, trouble is happening. Look at what happens. Okay, here it is again. Verse 20. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, Hira, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there. You've got to underline this. This is crazy. Where is the shrine prostitute? Underline the shrine prostitute. This is really good. Okay, I'm going to talk to you about that in a second. Okay? Where's the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at a name? Uh, there hadn't been a shrine prostitute here, they said. Underline there hadn't been a shrine prostitute. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived, to, lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but she did not find her. Stop there for just a minute. This is one of the great historical tidbits in scripture. You ready for this? A shrine prostitute amongst the Canaanite people was a a person who had dedicated them to the false god of fertility, and this was a brothel that basically was in a false pagan church. And so what he said was, where's the holy prostitute? <laughs> what he had done, and don't laugh and go fully ancient, we do the same stinking thing. What he had done as spiritually he made himself okay with sleeping with a prostitute. 
that as long as it's a holy prostitute, that it's a good one. Where's the shrine prostitute? And what happens? The world sits there and they go, <laughs> uh, there isn't a shrine prostitute here. The word of these men is basically, <laughs> there isn't really a shrine prostitute. Judah, you really think you're better than us? You really think you're better than us? It's okay for you to sleep with a prostitute as long as she's holy. And then all of a sudden, what does Judah do? He comes to his senses and he goes, I'm going to be a laughing stock. If this gets out, I'm going to be a laughing stock. Don't miss this. Are you ready? Um, what to, how do you protect yourself from folly? Number one, be mindful of what you spend your resources on. And number two, be mindful of what you are considering to be the truth. Be mindful of what you are considering to be the truth. In this city... If you do not go to Scripture as your end all for not just what is truth, but for what is right, that in the end, you will have followed after a truth that was never actually true. At the end of time, Scripture is what remains. That's it. I love what we do here in this city. We write law, we enact it, we put policy together, and your work is a very holy pursuit. But when it comes to your life... This is it. This is the truth. This is what we claim. In the end, if you follow something else, you're going to end up the same place. Everything burns with fire at the end, except what is holy. If you're taking notes, a little quote here for you. To affirm and justify falsehood assures your epic collision with what's true. Let me say that again. To affirm and justify falsehood assures your epic collision with what's true. That's what happened for poor Judah. <coughs> one little story for you. Best example I can give to you of this uh, comes from one of the finest pieces of American cinema ever made, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. You knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. You remember the scene? What is Ricky Bobby's motto that he lives his whole life by? If you ain't first... You're last, right? If you ain't first, you're last. Puts on the side of the car. I mean, everything he does. If you ain't first, you're last. You remember the scene when he finally sees his dad? Comes to the point where he's been living by, if you ain't first, you're last, and his life completely falls apart. It was great when he was winning. It was awful when all of a sudden he wasn't the best anymore. In fact, he was just second best, but it ruins his life completely. And you remember the scene? He's with the dad that was also the boss from Office Space, all right? And he looks at him, and he goes, Dad, I just don't get it. If you ain't first, you're last. And the dad looks at him and goes, that's a terrible motto, son. And then he goes, but you're the one who said it to me. Again, trying to point the finger of blame. You're the one who nudged me. You're the one who leaned on me. You're the one who said it to me, right? And you remember, he goes, Ricky, it doesn't even make sense. You could be second, third, fourth. Heck, you could even be fifth. You remember that? If you ain't first, you're last. And then he goes, but I've lived my whole life by this. And then all of a sudden, the dad goes, or then he goes, what am I supposed to do now? And the dad goes, ain't that the million dollar question? And then he hitchhikes down the road. Silly scene. Best example of this. Lived his whole life by that saying that made no sense. Guys, that's us. That's what we do. Live our whole life by things that we heard. Things that we had somebody just popping off in a TED Talk say. And all of a sudden we decided, that sounds good. I think I'll live my life by that. And sometimes... It's just a twinge off from Scripture. Like this one. I grew up in Texas. You know how many times we heard, God helps those who help themselves? We'd say, where is that in Scripture? In the Hezekiah 4, 2, I mean, whatever it was, right? <laughs> They'd pitch it like it was some verse. 
And the truth was, it says in Scripture, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as you're working for the Lord, not for men. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Again, there is a beautiful attitude of hard work and sacrifice. But that was not Scripture. Now listen to me. What are you living your life by? What truth are you embracing? And are you justifying terrible things because you simply just never really considered where it came from? If you're taking notes, a question here for you. Have you affirmed or justified lies? This is not me being hateful to you. I'm trying to lead you. Have you affirmed or justified lies? It's time to embrace the truth. Now look at what happens next. This is the real darkness in the passage. Look at what happens. He's got the cover-up going on. And then verse 24, it says, About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she's now pregnant. Now remember, Judah is the one who slept with her. Not just slept with the prostitute, but he has committed incest and he doesn't even know it. Look at what happens. It says, Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Stop right there for just a minute. Scholars are actually in debate on this. It's one of two things here. Either he is going to have her burned at the stake in front of the house because of this sin of prostitution, or he is going to take a hot poker and burn her face so that she carries the mark of shame. Either way, what he has decided to do is primal and brutal on this woman where he has committed the exact same sin. And not just sin, but he's committed it with her, alongside her. Look at what happens next. He said, bring her out, have her burned. Verse 25, it says, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by a man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Underline, she is more righteous than I. And look at this, he makes the connection immediately. Since I would not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. Stop right there for just a minute. I want you to notice something here. Two things. First of all, he says, she is more righteous than I. He does not say she is righteous. What Tamar had done was wicked and awful. She's guilty of prostitution and incest. And most likely hatred in her heart. But you've got Judah, who comes to realization that this sin began with him. That he is the one, and he says, I know exactly where it started. I knew to do right. I knew to take care of her, and I chose not to do it. In that moment, he says, she's more righteous than I. It's his way of saying, uh, I'm no better than she is. I'm an awful sinner as well. If you're taking notes, are you ready for this? How do you protect yourself from, a, from folly, from an avoidable mistake? Number one, be mindful of what you spend your resources on. Number two, be mindful of what you're considering to be truth. And number three, and in this city this might be the most important, you ready? Be mindful of your hypocrisy. Be mindful of your hypocrisy. Every one of us is a hypocrite. Every single one of us, okay? That does not give you a license to be a hypocrite. It means that you need to be mindful of your hypocrisy. Be mindful of what you say with your mouth and what you live with your life, what you think in your mind and what you do with your body. There is a, there is a disconnect that takes place there. Notice right here, he's got to halt the cover-up. He's got to come and speak the truth in this circumstance. 
Be mindful of your hypocrisy. Now write this down too. Are you ready? Perfection is impossible for anyone but Jesus. Let me say that one more time. Perfection is impossible for anyone but Jesus. When it comes to your expectations of others or your expectations of yourself, you cannot be perfect. You are going to screw up. It's what you do in the aftermath of that screw up that sets you apart as one who's a disciple or as one who continues to dwell and wallow like a pig in that sin. You got to make sure you move forward. Back in the day, my granddad took me out and was teaching me how to play golf. And I'll never forget, when we're learning how to play golf, my granddad said, the glory shot on the golf course is from the tee box. He said, the glory shot takes place because your friends are all around you and you all hit that first shot together and everybody's measuring who had the best shot from the tee box. But granddad said, the money's made on the second shot. The second shot is the most important because no matter where it was that you hit and started from, that second shot is really the point when you figure out, am I going to par this hole? Am I going to birdie this hole? Or am I going to be in a real patch of trouble? Your second shot is very important. You will screw up. In relationships, you will screw up. In money management, you will screw up. In lust, you will screw up. In lies, you will screw up. In anger, you will screw up. In coming up short in what people expect of you, you will screw up. But what do you do when that happens? What's your second shot? Do you step up and try your best to do what God's called you to do? Or do you just go, eh, it's just the way it goes. Eh, I'm justified in my behavior. I got a crazy story to tell you. Last story. So I did a conference this week. Got to go preach down in Dallas. I do this once a year. It's very special. A bunch of church planters together. And I want to go home, but my flight's delayed. You ever had that problem before? I'm in Dallas, DFW Airport. My flight's delayed. And as the flight's delayed... My phone rings, and Autumn says, the kids want to FaceTime you, okay? You ever FaceTimed with your family before? It's both wonderful and awful because it's so exciting to see them, but you got to hang up, right? And I'm telling you, we FaceTime, and the kids are running around going, Daddy, when are you coming home? Daddy, when are you coming home? And I'm watching. I'm like, oh, soon, soon. As soon as America will let me. I'm coming home, right? Okay, I'm coming home. And I'm sitting there, and they just, Daddy, Daddy. Well, then, finally, we have to get off the phone. When we do, I hang up the phone, and I'm just like, oh, okay, get on the plane, get home. Get on the plane, get home. And that's my single focus. Well, this had never happened before. I fly a bunch. But the flight attendant walks up to the microphone and says, I want you all to look around. We have more, or she said, her exact words were, we have double the carry-ons that we have ever had for this flight. She said, there is no baggage. There's almost no baggage under the plane. And you're looking around, and it's like every one of us have this carry-on on the plane. And she said, some of you need to check bags. There will not be space for even half of the carry-on bags that you've carried with you. And we're looking around, and I mean, you can tell. So then, nobody moves, because that's how we roll, all right? (laughs) Nobody moves. And then all of a sudden, she says, I'm going to say this one more time. Does anybody want to turn in a carry-on bag? Because you will have to put them under the plane. And at that point, again, some people come up and they start doing that. But I'm sitting there going, it's going to 
be like 45 extra minutes, you know, for that little carousel thing, right? And if I can get home in time, I can be with my kids and help put them to bed that night. So I'm like, no, 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 I'm keeping my bag. Well, all of a sudden, that has created like this angry turmoil amongst all the passengers for this flight. And because of that, when they announce the, the numbers of the people to come up and to get on the plane, I mean, we are like a horse race jockeying for position trying to get up close to the front. Well, when that happens, there's some people that start kind of pushing from the back, and then I'm carrying my bag, and somebody pushes me, and then I lean forward, and my bag hits the bag of the guy in front of me. Again, it's very tense. I've just FaceTime. I want to go home. Bump his bag, and it was really somebody else who nudged me into him. The dude does one of these. And he holds it. At that point, I looked at him, and guys, I'm so ashamed. I fired back at him, don't you look at me. What's in a man comes out of a man, I'm afraid. Don't you look at me. And at that point, he's from Massachusetts. At that point, he goes, then don't shove. And then I go, we're all shoving. That didn't even make sense. He whips around. Can I tell you what I love about getting mad at someone in line or in traffic? They're still there. And here's the deal. My first shot was into the rough. And I'm sitting there in line, and I'm just like, why did I do that? Why would I say something like that? And then I start thinking, I still have to write part of my sermon and finish it out so I can spend time with my kids later on tomorrow. And I'm sitting there going, I got I to gotta have a conversation with this man. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like... And then I thought it would be just like the Lord for him to be like sitting next to me. You know what I mean? If that's the way it happened. So I make the decision. We're about to step onto the actual plane. And I tap him on the shoulder. And when I do, he does this. He comes back around. (laughs) And I said, I'm sorry for shoving. I said, I made a mistake. And I said, would you shake my hand? I said, I'm very sorry. And he kind of looked at it. (laughs) And then I said... I was just talking to my kids on FaceTime right before we walked up here. I said, if I can get home in time, I can put them to bed. And I said, it's no excuse. I'm sorry. He grabs my hand. And he goes, we're all trying to get home. And then he goes, I'm sitting at the back of the plane. (laughs) He said, I'm from Massachusetts. I got a long drive to get back. And then he goes, I hope you get home in time to see your kids. And I said, man, I hope you make it in a decent hour to Massachusetts. And then all of a sudden, we were like friends. <laughs> Can I tell you what's interesting? I've got a very vivid memory. If I had seen him on the street, you get angry at somebody. They're like burned into your memory. If I saw him on the street, I probably would bring up the anger. But because we had a good moment... If I see him on the street now, we'll be friends. I can picture him now, even while I'm telling you a story. The first shot is the glory shot. I hope you get a lot of great drives off the tee box to start off your game. But the second shot, what you do when you've just hooked it into the rough, when you humble yourself, those are the powerful moments that change eternity.
Those are the powerful moments where you don't allow folly to take you over. It begs the question, are you projecting perfection or redemption? Let me ask you that question one more time. Are you projecting perfection or redemption? One final part, and we'll close today. I won't read it to you because, uh, because it's going to take a little bit too long and we're already way over and we got people standing in the cold. Now look at me. Some of you might say, why in the world is that verse in Scripture? Why is this chapter in Scripture? It's because of verses 27 through 30 at the end. Do you know who Judah and Tamar's son is? Perez. Perez is one of their kiddos. And can I tell you why Perez is important? Because Perez is in the lineage of the Messiah. Give me chills just talking about it. Perez is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. What happens in this passage at the very end is the beautiful picture that God is so powerful that he can take a mess of an incestuous, prostitution-filled, awful situation and he can find the good even in the midst of the absolutely unthinkable. Our God is so powerful. Our God is so amazing. Our God is able to restore all that has been broken. And that's the power of the story of Judah and Tamar. That when we finally submit to him, our God is able to redeem. Our God is able to fix us. And not just a little. The hope that we have, the reason we're gathered in this room today, is because of the message of Jesus and the hope that we have that actually has a trail off into the story of Judah and Tamar.